0: Um, Did I say 40? I meant 41. We would probably do well to read both chapters, but in the interest of time, we will read just Job chapter 41. And keep in mind now uh, the setting for this. The debate has run its course. None of Job's friends could come up with an answer for him. Elihu has spoken his piece, and Job really has no answer for Elihu, I like to think uh, of the book as God's voice kind of um, replacing Elihu's voice. It's as if there's a transition from Elihu into God himself. And so when God appears to Job, it is not for the purpose of explaining himself to Job, but rather it's for the purpose of calling Job to account. And that's the way it always is. Because he's God, and we are who we are. We're accountable to him. But in the process of a a lengthy interrogation that uh, God submits Job to, a strong emphasis is placed on the sovereign rule of God over everything within this universe. So it is in that setting, then, that we pick up our reading in verse 1 of chapter 41, this is God now speaking directly to Job. And he asks him, verse 1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put an hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons? Or his head with fish spears? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride. Shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his knees a light doth shine... And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together, they are firm in themselves, they cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. "'Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. "'Darts are counted as stubble. "'He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. "'Sharp stones are under him. "'He spreadeth sharp-pointed things upon the mire. "'He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. "'He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. "'He maketh a path to shine after him. "'One would think the deep to be hoary. "'Upon earth there is not his like, "'who is made without fear.'" He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over the children of pride. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of chapter 41. That kind of brings the interrogation of Job uh, to a conclusion. And then you have a conclusion to the book in the final chapter. Now in God's interrogation of Job, we see how God makes use of his creation in order to illustrate and emphasize a truth that we need to have stressed to our own souls, which is the truth of God's sovereign majesty. Oftentimes the scriptures direct our attention to some aspect of God's creation in order to magnify the glory of our God. So we read in Psalm 19 in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. That text teaches us that when we have occasion on a clear star-filled night to look up into the sky, we should be reminded of the greatness of our God. He knows each star by name. He knows how many there are. He reigns high above the expanse of this universe. The heavens are also revealed to us as a gauge. We're to gauge the greatness of God's mercy by the heavens. So we read in Psalm 103 in verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. I look at a text like that and I draw great comfort from it. How merciful is our God! Will look up into the heavens and consider that that's how high his mercy reaches. So great is his mercy toward them that fear him as the heaven is high above the earth. In another text we read, Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. That's in Psalm 36 and verse 6. As you stand at the foot of a mountain... Or a mountain range, you should let that mountain preach to you. Let it tell you that it stands as the measure of God's righteousness. Or if you're able to ascend up into that mountain and look to the valleys below, let the depth of those mountain valleys tell you that God's judgments run very deep. In his interrogation of Job, God is directing Job's attention to much of what God has created. The foundations of the earth, to the springs of the sea, to the place where light dwells, or the place where darkness hides, to the treasures of the snow, to the rain, the lightning, the thunders, the constellations, the clouds, the drops of dew. All of these things preach to Job and preach to us that God rules and reigns over all. There is nothing in all this universe that escapes the realms of God's dominion. And that's the whole emphasis on God's interrogation of Job. Now in the second half of chapter 40, we didn't read this section, and throughout all of chapter 41, God is focusing on two of his creatures. Let me read to you some verses now from chapter 40. Beginning in verse 15, we read, Behold now Behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together, his bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. And in the beginning then of chapter 41, Job is asked, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down? So you have these two creatures then, him off and Leviathan, and it's been a long-standing mystery among commentators about what these beasts actually are. The older commentaries are divided when it comes to the matter of Behemoth. The consensus seems to be that this beast is either an elephant or a hippopotamus. The biggest problem with either of these animals is that in verse 17 we are told that he moveth his tail like a cedar. Now that doesn't seem to correspond to the tail of a hippopotamus, which is short and stubby, or the tail of an elephant, which is thin and contains a tassel of a few fine hairs on the end of it. More contemporary commentators, especially Those creation scientists who make it their business to research the things of this world from the perspective of creation, they suggest that this beast is neither a hippopotamus or an elephant, but rather a large type of dinosaur which had a massive-sized tail and which ate grass like the ox. You've ever seen a picture of a brontosaurus You have seen the picture of a very large creature which stands very tall and has a tail that is very large in size. We might note from the text in chapter 40 and verse 17, however, that the reference is not so much to the size of the tail as it is to the movement of his tail. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The picture becomes somewhat obscure When we ask the question, how does a cedar move? We know that cedars are very large trees with roots that are planted very deep. We usually think of cedars as emblems of those things that are planted fast and don't move at all. Solomon's temple was built in large measure with cedars from Lebanon. And we think of that temple as something that stood fast for many generations. I've heard sermons describing in great detail the growth of a cedar in Lebanon, how it grows first in its roots and then grows up to great heights. It's a great emblem depicting Christian growth or the growth of the church of Christ. It first takes root downward and then bears fruit upward. Now some commentators have suggested that the reference in Job 40 and verse 17 is not the tail of the elephant, but rather its trunk. And now you have an instance of something that is large, certainly larger than the elephant's tail, and very agile. This could perhaps also answer to the description in verse 23, which tells us that this behemoth Drinketh up a river, and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. And if you've ever seen an elephant drink, you know that he sucks water into his trunk, and then squirts it into his mouth. Those who favor the hippopotamus point of view point out how the image of verse 23 may also correspond to a hippopotamus swimming in the river, completely submerged, except for his eyes and his nostrils, creating the image that he's drinking up the river as he swims. Then again, those who want to call this creature some sort of Brontosaurus, I'm sure would say that the size of such a creature made it necessary for him to drink large quantities of water. His tail also was agile and was his chief weapon for defense. The Leviathan is no less difficult to identify in chapter 41. Some say the reference is to a whale because of its size. Others have identified it as a crocodile because of the description of its scales. You may have noticed from some of the verses that the description sounds very much like a dragon. Verse 19, Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go a smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Some see in this description uh, a more spiritual picture a depiction of the devil, who is depicted as a dragon in Revelation chapter 12. In the imagery of that chapter, this dragon, ironically, with the use of his tail, is said to draw the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. In the context of the book of Job, however, it doesn't seem likely to me that the devil is in view. Whatever we make of these creatures, behemoth and leviathan, I think we must recognize at the very least that however obscure these creatures are to us, Job knew what they were. For my part, I'm happy to let the scientists of our day who believe in God and acknowledge him to be the creator of the universe, I'm happy to let them conduct their research and endeavor to identify these creatures for us. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that if you go back, if you collect the current magazines that come out, um, there are a couple of articles written by Bill Pinkston who is a science teacher down in Greenville, and he will give you his view in some detail about these creatures and what they are. And if in the course of their research they conclude that Behemoth is a brontosaurus and Leviathan is perhaps some other creature that resembled a dragon but is now extinct, well, I'll respect their research. The question that needs to be addressed, however, is not so much what these creatures are as much as the question of what was the divine intention behind God describing these creatures to Job? What message is God communicating to Job through the use of these unusual creatures? And I think chapter 41 and verse 10 makes it very clear to us about what God is saying. Listen to this verse. This is Job 41 and verse 10. None is so fierce that dare stir him up, that is Leviathan, who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine, now take any one of these creatures and any of the explanations given with regard to them. The next time you're at the zoo, for instance, picture yourself as being before that elephant. Okay, You can jump over the moat, so to speak, and you're right there in the same lot with him, and you're looking him right in the eye. You're face to face with this elephant. Can you take him? Can you bring him down? Can you hog-tie him the way a cowboy would a steer? Go argue with him. Go punch him with your fist as hard as you can and as many times as you can. You think he'll even notice you? Maybe you'll succeed in annoying him enough to wrap you with his trunk and toss you out of his way. Or maybe you can make him him angry enough to trample you under his feet. Consider that you stand a better chance with him than you do with God. Who can stand before God? You're more likely to prevail against an elephant than you will with God. Your chances are far better for harnessing a brontosaurus and bringing him home to be your pet. Than for you to contend against God and prevail. The next time you go fishing, why not go fishing for a whale? Grab one of these giant mammals with a hook and reel him in. Or better yet, dive right into the water after him, grab him and subdue him. Bring him to the place where he must look to you for mercy. Subdue him to the point that you can own him and make him swim in your pond the way a goldfish would in your fish bowl. Seem a little far-fetched? Well, you're more likely to succeed in that venture than you are to take issue with God and prevail. What if this Leviathan speaks to us symbolically of the devil? I don't believe it does. I think there is something very definite and tangible about this creature, whatever it is. But certainly we can draw an analogy between what seems to be a description of a dragon and the devil. Can you bring the devil into subjection to you? Can you succeed against him with any weapon? The text tells us in verse 23 that the arrow cannot make him flee... Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. There you go. Shake your spear at the devil and try to intimidate him. You stand a better chance against him than you do against God. Who then is able to stand before me? Job 41 and verse 10. This is the point that God is making to Job and that he makes to us all. Is Behemoth a great beast? Is he gigantic in size? How much more, God, who cannot be contained in the universe? King Solomon, with all his wisdom and skill, may design an ornate temple. It may be very large and impressive in the eyes of all that behold it. It took many years to build it. It was an impressive project which called for vast quantities of timber and precious stones and metals, and it demanded great skill in craftsmanship to build Knowing the wisdom of Solomon as we do, and knowing how powerful a monarchy became, I think it would be fair to say that there was no temple ever built like the one that Solomon built. But at its completion and its dedication... Solomon had the wit to know that God is so much greater than anything man can build. And so he says, Solomon does in his dedication prayer, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. God is greater than Than the greatest temple. God is greater than the greatest creature of his creation. God is stronger than Behemoth, for Behemoth draws his strength from God. God is the source from which all strength originates. God is more powerful and more fierce than Leviathan. Of God it can be said, more than of Leviathan, none is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? You could call that question in that text the conclusion of God's interrogation of Job. Everything this intensive and prolonged interrogation leading to that question, who is able to stand before me? This is the question then to contemplate. As God's interrogation of Job reaches this point, I would conclude our study this afternoon with just a couple of observations about God's dealings with Job and his dealings with us. One, we must strive to establish and maintain a very high view of God. It's a mark of spiritual decadence of our day that those that name the name of Christ have little, if any, knowledge about the greatness of the God that they serve and worship and our Savior. Christianity today, I would suggest to you, Is very largely self absorbed. In other words, we're too prone to be self centered. The emphasis in Christian ministry these days is to teach us how to cope with difficulties. And I'm afraid that this emphasis has become so entrenched in our Christian culture that we have the mistaken notion that the very purpose of God's existence is to serve us and help us cope with life. He exists for our benefit and well-being rather than we existing for his glory. That's kind of the thing, you know, that Job had to get right. That he didn't get right until God appeared to him in the end. When Christians of what I will only know to call the therapeutic mindset turn to the book of Job, I'm afraid they may come away disappointed because God does not exist for Job. Job exists for God. And God does not give an account of his actions to Job, but rather emphasizes to Job that he rules and reigns over all. This is expressed to us in the words of verse 11. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything, because everything under the whole heaven belongs to him. He has the right to do what he will with that which belongs to him. If we would stand before him, therefore, we must do so with reverence and godly fear. In a sense, this exalted view of God is the starting point for the Christians' walk with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. We're told repeatedly in the Psalms and in Proverbs. We can't begin to live. We can't begin to face challenges. We can't begin to worship. We can't begin to understand or interpret God's ways until we have learned the fear of the Lord. We can't begin to understand the gospel or appreciate God's grace until we have laid the foundation that God is very great and that he reigns over all the earth. My next observation is simply this. Just as we must strive to establish a high view of God, we must be very careful to maintain a low view of ourselves in comparison. Pride had reared its ugly head in Job's life. He started out well. You remember his submission, perhaps, way back in chapter 1, When he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is tremendous submission, even in the face of great adversity. This testimony marks Job as one who did indeed fear the Lord. It vindicates God's testimony concerning Job that there was none like him in the earth. One who was perfect and upright, who feared God and eschewed evil. If we knew nothing more about Job, we would be prone to think that he lived on a spiritual plane that none of us could ever reach. But alas, this faith and submission was not something that Job could maintain in his own strength. With the passing of time and the prolonging of his trial, and the provocation of the devil, as well as his friends, we come to see all too plainly that there's another side to Job. There's a sinful nature that yet abides in him. He does reach the place where he takes issue with God. He challenges God's dealings. He charges God with wrongdoing. This trial isn't fair, and it isn't right, Job asserts. He knows better than God how God should run the universe, or at least how he should run it as it regards Job. He would disannul God's dealings. He would justify himself rather than God. But when at last God steps down, Job realizes in an instant the folly of his ways and the sinfulness of his words. He is brought back, in a sense, to the place where we find him in chapter 1, submitting himself to God, acknowledging God's right to do what he wills with his own, and realizing that God alone is qualified and fit to do what's right in this world. And he does, in fact, do all things well. So what's the difference between Job, as we find him in chapter 1, and Job as we find him in chapter 41. The difference is that Job, now at the end of the book, knows much more about the strength of inbred sin. He knows more about his own pride. He knows more about his own propensity to take issue with God. He has a much higher view of God and a much lower view of himself, and I believe this book is given to us so that Job's experience may be ours. In this position now of exalting God more highly and debasing himself, Job is in the place where he can receive grace and receive it with abundance. And in the last chapter of the book, that's exactly what happens. In spite of his pride, in spite of his contention with God, Job in the end, is vindicated. In spite of the fact that God owes no man anything, God will see fit to bless Job more abundantly in the end than he did in the beginning. So learn to understand God's dealings in your life in this light then. God works in your life to stir your heart to a more exalted view of God and a more humble view of yourself This is not always a pleasant process, but it does always lead to grace. It's prompted by grace, and it leads to more grace. And this is how we go from faith to faith, and from strength to strength. May God give us then the help of a spirit so that we may gain a more exalted view of God, a humble view of ourselves, And may we learn to appropriate all of nature to that end in concluding that our God is very great. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we rejoice to know that God rules and reigns. We cannot deny, O Lord, that we have a propensity within our minds and hearts to exalt ourselves at times and to question and challenge God. O Lord, may we draw from the truth of this wonderful book that thou hast given us that we're called on to submit to God, to submit to his sovereign rule, and may we, O Lord, as thou dost enable us, Render to thee the obedience that is thy due. So, Lord, hear our prayers and take our thanks. In Christ's name, amen.